And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Tuesday evenings, NBC is broadcasting a new drama series which is called The Council of Dads. And it's loosely based upon a best-selling book of the same name that was published back in 2011. I thought in honor of this uh, new series, I would replay the conversation that I recorded with the author of the book, Bruce Feiler, uh, back in June of 2011, not long after Father's Day. It's a beautiful book, and it's uh, also a, a most interesting interview, I think. So I hope you enjoy it. With Father's Day just behind us, it's very good timing that uh, I have this opportunity today to speak with uh, best-selling author Bruce Feiler about his remarkable book, The Council of Dads, a story of family, friendship, and learning how to live. I'm sure many of you know the name Bruce Feiler from such uh, previous bestsellers as Walking the Bible. And uh, he writes uh, the, the This Life column for the New York Times. And uh, his remarkable skills as a writer are certainly on display in this very personal memoir in which he tells the story of receiving a, a devastating medical diagnosis. And then uh, among the responses which he had to that news was to, in a sense, assemble uh, a circle of six men important to him, six different friends. And uh, they were of, of huge help to him uh, in this time. And uh, Bruce Feiler writes about that experience. And it's not only a worthwhile story to read, not only in terms of, of it being interesting in and of itself, but also because it gets the rest of us thinking about how we might respond should we be given a, a similar diagnosis of a very, very serious illness, and uh, of what friends we might look to in our own lives to form a similar sort of council of dads who might step in uh, as, as, as sort of godparents or substitute parents or whatever you want to say in the wake of our own death. A very intriguing story indeed, and again, beautifully told in this book, which is now available in paperback, from Harper Perennial, the Council of Dads. Bruce Feiler, we welcome you to the morning show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and uh, learn a little more about this, this, this really intriguing story. Um, it's possible that there are some listeners who actually uh, don't know the full story oh behind it. Appalling. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm going to run from the phone here. Right. Uh, t- t- sketch for our listeners actually... Uh, ahead of this diagnosis, uh, the way in which you had been famous to many Americans as a walker, so to speak. Well, I was a traveler. I was a seeker. I was an adventurer. I was a goer. I was a doer. Um, um, However you want to say it, I was the kind of person who went out and did things. I'd spent uh, probably at that point 15 years of uh, professional life traveling around the world, entering different subcultures, writing about them. Uh, I think at the time, uh, I probably had published maybe eight books. Uh, You mentioned Walking the Bible, which describes the year I spent retracing the five books of Moses through the deserts of the Middle East, climbing Mount Ararat, crossing the Red Sea, uh, climbing Mount Sinai, tasting manna, uh, a whole year that became a book, became then a TV show I hosted on PBS. Uh, I had then written in subsequent years, a, a series of books kind of continuing that journey. Abraham, 
each looked at the shared ancestor of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, uh, then uh, Where God Was Born, which followed that up. But earlier, even in my life, I had uh, written a book about Japan. I had spent a year as a circus clown. Uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin, there we go, uh, hometown of the Ringling Brothers. <laughs> and so I had, uh, um, I, I was a seeker, a doer. I was, you know, the walking guy in a lot of ways. And then uh, that's what made, as you were leading to and, and, and said in the, in the intro to our conversation, three years ago, uh, this month in June of 2008, I first learned that I had a seven-inch osteosarcoma uh, in my left femur. So suddenly I was the walking guy who might never walk again. I remember someplace in the book you say for however many years, uh, the only interesting medical thing that occurred to you at all was yeah. this accident and this broken leg. And uh, then, wow, the second time you uh, had to deal with a doctor, uh, it was all too interesting, this uh, very, very surprising diagnosis. Yeah, I broke my leg when I was five. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and was hit by a, a car when I was five uh, and broke my left femur. It's the largest bone in your body. I was in a body cast for a couple of months that went from under my chin down to my left toe and then down to my right knee, and then a steel bar went from my right knee to my left ankle. And they don't do that anymore, but that happened to me. And then it healed, as these things do, and I never thought about it again. And you're right, there is a line in The Council of Dads, the book The Council of Dads, in which I said it was the only medically interesting thing that ever happened to me. I would race through those forms when I went to see a doctor, and then suddenly, 38 years later, 38 years later the same spot, uh, a cancer, a, a large seven-inch tumor shows up. And so I mean, doctors, they can't say definitively there's a correlation, but, you know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, gets a duck, right? So there seems to be this uh, this correlation between that event and this event. It, it seemed too much of a coincidence that it was the same spot, the same place, the same bone in my body. Hmm. Um, there are all kinds of questions uh, which one is suddenly confronted with uh, when you receive a diagnosis like this. And I so appreciate uh, some of the ways you explore this and also in the way that you uh, draw some striking contrasts. For instance, one of the things that you found yourself uh, thinking about was the contrast between yourself and I believe it's your grandfather uh, who took his own life uh, when he found himself caught in a serious illness and just simply didn't want to, to bear that uh, burden any, any longer. But from what you could tell, your, your grandfather was someone who did not uh, explore his feelings or certainly express his feelings uh, very readily to anyone. And by contrast, you found yourself... Uh, expressing your own feelings endlessly. You say at one point, I, I talked of nothing else except of what you were feeling in the wake of this news and trying to, to, to move forward. Say a bit more about what the experience was like of how this diagnosis prompted you to understand more the, the, the sad story of your own grandfather. Well, I, I was, again, to set the stage a little bit, as you said, I, I, this happened to me three years ago. I, I was a 43-year-old man. I was a very good professional situation. I was married. I had very young ch 
children. I have three-year-old identical twin daughters. And I would say a series of things that go through your head in a moment like this. But to me, it was kind of a chain. It was like, number one, I've lived a full life. If, if what happened, if, if for whatever set of reasons this has happened to me, no one's ever going to say that I didn't live my life very fully. My wife, who runs a nonprofit that supports young entrepreneurs around the world, she would find a way to live a life of passion and joy, I thought. I mean, it would be difficult, it would be painful, but it's the nature of who she is. But I had these young children, and I kept coming back to them. And it really propelled me into this year of thinking about, uh, while I was going through this medical journey, thinking in particular about them, about fatherhood, about male voices in general in our lives. And one of the things that I did was I went back and spoke to my father and explored the lives of my two grandfathers and other father figures in my life. So one of, as you know, I, I can tell that you were kind enough to read the Council of Dads before we had this conversation, which is, as your listeners know, is very rare when you do interviews like this. Um, and I, I had two grandfathers. Uh, my father's father, uh, uh, well, let me come back to him. So my mother's father, who died before I was born, and I never met him. And in many ways, I was named after him. He was, he was a uh, physician in Baltimore. And it turns out, in his life, which I didn't really know, he had collected for 30 years, he had collected epitaphs, things that people write on their tombstones. He'd gone through books, and he had five volumes that were donated to the Smithsonian upon his death in 1961. And I actually went on crutches, actually with my mother, and looked through this. And so here I am, here I am a young person thinking about dying early to find that my grandfather collected epitaphs with this amazing coincidence. And <laughs> 9,000 of them, the world's largest collection. Oh my gosh, it was collection. like, you know, Robert Ripley, and believe it or not, he had half, half as many. And then I go to Baltimore, where he, was, where he uh, lived and died, to his tomb, thinking, okay, let's find out which one he picked, only to find no epitaph on his tombstone. I mean, my brother said it was like the greatest example of, um, of writer's block he ever heard. Hmm. So, um, my other grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was quite the opposite. Not only was he living when I was um, born and a child, he was living right behind us in a house that was, the whole thing was right out of Faulkner. Uh, right, you had my grandparents, you had my uncle right next door, you had us. And we saw him quite a lot. I used to go every Saturday morning and work in his office where he built low-income housing and was a lawyer and worked with my father. And he took his own life a, a month before I graduated from high school in 1983. And he left behind, at the time of his death, uh, 28 cassette tapes in which he narrated his life that no one in my family had ever listened to or, or in fact, read because my father had them transcribed. And I went back and read it, and as you said, it was very, very interesting because he grew up in rural Mississippi and didn't have a lot of friends. I mean, this, this talked about his, his life, his schooling, his rise to be a small-town lawyer where he defended you know, crooks and murderers and pornographers, and he was just desperate to get any clients in a place that didn't respect lawyers in South Georgia in the, in the, in the mid-20th century but he never mentioned his mother by name. He never mentioned his wife by name, their courtship or their marriage. He mentioned my father and my father's brother like only once or twice, my mother never, the grandchildren not at all. So he clearly didn't define himself by family. And, and one of the things I think that 
one of the reasons that the Council of Dads, I think, has struck this chord with people, particularly with women, is it, is it shows this evolution and and man and maleness and manhood and what it means to be communicative. So here's my grandfather, didn't as you mentioned, didn't really clearly define himself by his family. Whereas I'm now spending an entire year not only surrounded by family, talking to my family, specifically writing you know a book and gathering all this life lessons from my daughters effectively thinking only about that. <laughs> you write at one point, Papa approached his illness as a saddle to bear, both wordlessly and alone. He didn't even share his anxieties with his family. I, by contrast, was not only writing regular letters to family and friends, but I was also sending them through email, which meant they were being bounced around to people I didn't even know. Papa never talked about his feelings. I talked of nothing else. You're right. That is a remarkable uh, example of the transformation of of our roles. Your 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 uh, grandfather being probably relatively typical for his day, and you being somewhat typical of uh, of the male of of today. And we don't sometimes stop to think about what that change really means. And Bridget is my father, who who um, clearly loved his family, but was not a big writer or communicator himself. I mean, my, my father, in the chapter devoted to him in the Council of Dads, uh, I, we talk about when he turned, had a milestone birthday, I don't remember which one, a few years ago, we gathered these sayings of his, and he's a man of these kind of short, quippy uh, sayings. Um, it's not like the Twitter one, the, the blank my dad says, but it was that kind of stuff. And um, we gathered into short sayings, Never eat upstairs in a two-story restaurant. You marry the whole family. Uh, things like that. And I gathered them so that you could almost see the bridge. My father, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, Papa, not talking at all. My father talking in these kind of short, cryptic sentences. And then me talking in now 10 books uh, in the course of my 20 years of, uh, of professional life. We're speaking with Bruce Feiler and talking about his book, The Council of Dads. And again, before we get to the assemblage of these six important men, I want to ask you about something you, you actually something about your wife and something about your your, your daughters. Uh, I, I found this so intriguing that uh, at one point uh, you you realize that that one of the most difficult questions or most awkward questions uh, was this. This is how you write it. The issue of how much discomfort to share with your wife and with others who are already overburdened by caring for me. You call that quite a puzzle. And I think a lot of people don't stop to think about that. But in fact, anybody who lives with this reality uh, is in fact confronted by that, that question of how much of their own discomfort to share with others and how they should share that discomfort. Could you just speak a moment about how you wrestled with this intriguing question and maybe how if the answer to that question changed through the course of your illness? So here I am, I'm sick, and, and lots of people want to know. I mean, I, you mentioned that I write this column in the New York Times, uh, and my column last week was on on really how to handle this issue of if you if you when you have a friend or a loved one who's sick, if anybody goes to my website brucefiler.com, you can you can click on the link to that article. And I chose to handle it by by first of all sending out these letters and and they're gathered in the Council of Dads as a kind of journal of this lost year, as I refer to it. 
And I did it partly for practical reasons because just simply as a patient, it's too much to go through what you have to go through during the day, fighting the illness, nurses, doctors, insurance henchmen, and then sit on the phone at night and tell the same stories over and over again. So I started sending a series of letters, and as you said earlier, they kind of got bounced around and kind of developed a kind of uh, a viral following of their own. Um, if you will. But this particular issue, I mean, here I'm a communicator, I'm a writer, I like to tell stories, and it's how I express myself and kind of find meaning. But there's only so much people want. I mean, one of the things that we end up doing, we kind of divided and conquered, okay? So, and and that was almost part of the idea, it turns out, of why the Council of Dads was so effective, was kind of dividing up different parts of myself for different men, and we created this support group. We'll get to that in a second. But specifically on this matter, you know, it became very important to me, okay, my wife really has to be focused on the girls because they need parenting. And though we had a lot of help, like only she could do a lot of that. Whereas a lot of the sort of emotional support I needed, I would often actually seek it from other people because it just was too much. My wife has a job, and suddenly she's got a husband and out of the hospital. She's got two children and that are three, and, and it, the whole thing became too much to bear. And it, there was one moment, and I tell the story in the book, The Council of Dads, that where she says, you know, I, I tell me what you're going through. And because I was like being Mr. Stoic, I, there's, there's a bit of my grandfather in me. And I was like, oh, no, no, you don't want to know. And she's like, oh, yes, I do want to know. I'm like, trust me, you don't want to know. And she's like, no, I do want to know. I'm like, okay, fine, sit down. This is what's going on. This is what aches. This is what pains. This is what fears. This is what scares. This is what worries. This is what keeps me up at night. She didn't sleep for the next two nights. <laughs> So there is this balance that you go through. And I, one of the pieces of advice that I give people who were, particularly young people, who were going through sickness is be sure you have somebody in the orbit who's been a young person who's been sick. In some ways, it doesn't even need to be the same illness because there's a particular loneliness that comes from going through feelings that people around you are not going through. And it's that loneliness that, that in, in some ways, is maybe the one of the scariest things. Hmm. I especially loved the the chapter uh, called Use Your Words, <laughs> in which you talk about uh, the many games that you and your wife have, have played with your twin daughters over the years. And, uh, I mean, they're just, they're just great, and, and games designed to, to get them thinking and to, to get them speaking and using their words with great imagination. I mean, you can talk about those games if you like. But then that leads very starkly into this new reality and into what you regard as one of the most serious mistakes that you and your wife made in the wake of your your diagnosis. Um, We have very verbal girls, and it is the instinct among those around us to say, oh, it's because their parents are verbal. Obviously, I'm verbal. You don't have to listen to this conversation for a minute and not realize that. My wife went to law school and is also a, kind of a high-energy verbal person. And I have to say, it's like one of the most annoying things people say to me as a parent, because that might be true. I mean, for all I know, there might be this you know, genetic component, whatever, um, uh, though neither of our siblings are anywhere near as verbal as we are. But the truth is, we really, really work at it. We really practice it, and we take it very seriously. We're constantly playing verbal games at dinner, Bad. What happened bad to you today? What happened good to you today? We have alliteration Thursday and rhyming Tuesday, and and we're you know poetry night where we memorize poetry. I mean, we do all these things, 
And in fact, I'm actually working on a new book now about the successful families, and I've learned a lot since about how it is and you know, kind of using word games with children, uh, narratives helps give them, um, helps build literacy and things like that. So we actually, you know, like a lot of parents when our kids would throw tantrums, and remember we had two girls that were terrible twos for like, I think terrible two. I used to think terrible twos refers to the age two. Well, for us it referred to the two years when they were terrible. Um, uh, but so we would say, use your words, like a lot of parents. Well, guess what? So you, you, you alluded to it. So here I got sick. And I would go in and out of the hospital. My daughter, my daughters don't have younger siblings, so they'd never seen mom in the hospital giving birth to anybody. They didn't really know what a hospital was at the time. And so we went silent on them. We didn't tell them really what was going on. I mean, we told them, daddy has a boo-boo. He's working with the doctors. He's trying to get better. Of course, I'm on crutches for a year and a half. I'm bald from the chemotherapy. So they can see something is going on. But we, we were honest, but we weren't too honest. And then when I would go to the hospital, it turns out they were freaking out. We got calls from the school, something is wrong. They began to have nightmares. And I then said to one of them, well, okay, so were you worried when Daddy was away for a couple of days? And she said, well, I was very, 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 very worried. And that, that was like four varies. And then I realized we needed to change. And so then I started talking to them about a hospital. And their questions were like, where do you sleep? Because at their doctor's office, there's no bed. What do you eat? Because at their doctor's office, there's no food. And it was like not what I was thinking about, um, but it was a lesson. So, you know, use your words. Not only should it be said to parents, I mean, to children when they're having tantrums, but it should be said to parents when they're going through difficult circumstances to find a way uh, to talk to it about your children. And, and again, my motto here, and I, it applies so much, whether it's that or death of a grandparent or a tornado or whatever it is the kids are worried about, be honest. Not too honest, depending on the age of the child. But be honest. We're Use your words. <laughs> we're speaking with Bruce Feiler. We're talking about his book, The Council of Dads. And, of course, this is uh, the point now. We need to talk about this really interesting insight that you, you had or this sort of light bulb goes off uh, atop your head. Um, I think you awoke very early one morning, still, of course, reeling from this news, uh, this diagnosis, and realized uh, that one of the most important things you could do on behalf of your daughters, and should you not survive this health scare, um, what could you do on their behalf that would really have lasting meaning? And it came down to, among other things, your own voice and thinking of men in your life who could know and recreate, in a sense, your voice. Talk a bit more about when this insight came to you and, uh, and, and, uh, and, when, and how you acted on it. So it grows very nicely from what we were just talking about because voice, I'm a writer, I'm a talker, I'm a communicator, and that's what was going through my mind when I was first diagnosed. My girls will have plenty of opportunities. They'll have loving families. They'll have welcoming homes. They'll have each other, but they may not have me they may not have their dad, and particularly with my voice at different moments in their lives. And so that, you don't really sleep when you get a diagnosis like this uh, for the start, actually probably for the whole time you're under treatment, to be honest. But uh, three days later, I awoke with this idea of how I could give them my voice. I would reach out to men. It became six men. And I would ask each of them to be present 
uh, in the lives of my daughters. And to, and I and I got out of bed. I had this idea. I was crying. I didn't want to wake my wife. And I said, I'll call them the Council of Dads. And as soon as I said it, I, I somehow knew that this idea was going to be in the world uh, forever. In fact, it always it just seemed like an old idea, like some kids are old souls. This was an old idea. And lots of time passed. I, I told my wife, who, who loved the idea, but then started rejecting my nominees. She would say, well, I love him, but I would never ask him for advice. So that, we went through that whole stage, and we ultimately picked the, net, picked the man. Um, and we could talk a little bit about that if you want. But to me, I was really struck that you said at the outset about this idea of godparents. And I think that's really what it became. It became this community, as one of the men later described it, you know, this kind of symphony of voices. Okay, this one's the drum, and this one's the trumpet, and, and, and Linda becomes the conductor in this analogy, Linda being my wife, uh, of course. And the point is they all don't – it doesn't – I'm not giving them my children. Um, they're, they're not becoming guardians. Once or twice a year, they do something, kind of like a godparent. But collectively, it, for the kids, it becomes this whole thing. And more importantly now for all of us, especially now that I'm healthy and, and people keep saying, have you disbanded? I was like, well, no, it's this incredible thing in our lives, which is why I think so many people have done it, regardless of the particular circumstances it grew out of. It is this sort of new way of creating an old-fashioned community uh, around our children. I don't remember if you said this as you described it, but uh, you you made the decision that this would specifically be men, even though obviously there were women in your life that also yeah. knew you well. But it from from the way you write about this, it sounds like the fact that your your daughters would still have your wife, their mother, in their lives made it important to you that uh, that these be fatherly voices to fill that vacuum of your absence. You know, oh, you my wife is a council of one. I mean, that's for sure. And and in no way was this, um, you know, trying to supplant her in any way. And, and, you know, she would have gone on to live a life, maybe even gotten remarried. Uh, um, certainly what I would have wished for her, which would have been a, a life of happiness for herself if, if, if I had not survived this ordeal. Um, but, yes, I, I think that, yeah, to, to get to get something onto the table that, that people don't like to talk about these days, there is a difference um, between motherly voices and fatherly voices, and not so much uh, that they all fatherly voices are the same, because we know they're not, but because there is a sort of balance that the voices develop inside a family. And so I was specifically trying to capture my voice, and my voice being... Um, in some ways an old-fashioned male voice and in some ways a new-fashioned male voice. And if you look at the men in my council, they kind of range. So, you know, one of them might be, one of them is a, is a, is a new male friend of mine, if you will, who, who he buys sports cars and gives speeches about boring bottles of wine and is a sports fan and kind of a very competitive guy. But he also leaves work early. He coaches Little League. He hugs. He bakes. You know, and his job was to teach him how to dream. I got another dad in my group who uh, works during the week, but on the weekend puts on a bomber jacket and flies stun airplanes and then goes in the summer and works with Mother Teresa and bike motorcycles around the Mediterranean, right? So he's not married. We call him irresponsibility dad. He's like rebellion dad. I'm like, go, go rebel with him, at least it's somebody I trust with. You know, and there's someone else to teach him how to, how to ask questions, someone else teaching him how to fish or how to travel. So it's this collection of voices that 
I kind of went through my personality and picked different aspects of it that I would have been disappointed if I couldn't teach my girls, that I'm one of these people who in many cases taught me. For example, the first person who took me on a trip abroad when I was a student. You teach my girls how to travel, and he was amazing on this, right? You got to jump in those mud puddles when you see them. You got to get off the bus. You got to be a traveler, not a tourist, was his saying to my daughters. And in a lot of ways, the reason I wrote the book, The Council of Dads, was to just capture all this wisdom in one place because I realized it may have been meant for my girls, but in the end, we're the ones who really needed it. Absolutely. And actually, what you're talking about, this is with uh, your friend named uh, Jeff Shumlin, who uh, is one of the six in the Council of Dads. He has wonderful things to say about traveling and, 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 and his saying of be a traveler, not a tourist. At one point, he says, a traveler is someone who can let go of what is familiar and in a very conscious way, seek out what is different? It is someone willing to slow down enough, get off the pressured achievement track, and seize the opportunity. It is someone willing to break the routines of home. And of course, that's got nothing to do with your cancer, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful lesson that all of us should learn, and if you hadn't written this book, that's something none of us would have uh, heard in exactly that way. I had this conversation with Jeff. It was the very beginning of my journey the very beginning, he was the first person in to the Council of Dads. Um, I, I didn't call these people or, or write them or email them, God forbid. I, sat, I decided to sit down with each of them in person and induct them into the Council of Dads. And the, Jeff, Jeff was the first one in. And I read him this letter. And then I, he was the first one I said, if you could give my girls one lesson, what would it be? And in a lot of ways, that's really why I wrote the book. And I got up because I got up from that conversation. And I said to my wife, I said to Linda, I said, this is going to change how you parent. This is, you know, forget the girls for a second, even forget me for a second. Uh, This is going to change you because the advice was so pitch perfect. And it just kept continuing. And now I kind of look at this book as, and, and it's why I went through with the two grandfathers we talked about earlier, my dad, myself. Like, what are all the, what is the one life lesson we would pass on to our kids? And to me, that's really what the Council of Dads is. It's this, it's this collection of wisdom for how to live. Mm. You have a very interesting image of what this, in a sense, lost year uh, ultimately represented. Uh, you, you end up likening it to uh, something which one can read about in the Old Testament, namely the, the Jubilee year. Explain that image to our listeners. Well, we talked earlier that I, I had written four books about the Bible, um, and I've actually just written subsequently a book about, um, a new book I'm publishing called Generation Freedom, about the current uprisings in the Middle East. And so I had spent a lot of time looking at the connection between the Bible and the present. And my last book was about the role of Moses in America. It's called America's Prophet. On the Liberty Bell is a quote from Moses. Proclaim liberty throughout the, the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That quote comes from the book of Leviticus um, and from a particular passage in the book of Leviticus in which God says every seven years you should let the land lay fallow and every seven sets of seven years the land gets an extra year of rest. Um, and during that extra year, the, the, the 50th year, 
uh, you should be surrounded by the ones you love, and, and all people should be free, and all families should be reunited. And that 50th year is called the Jubilee year. And to me, it kind of perfectly captures what happened to me. So I'm shy of 50. This lost year became my Jubilee year. It became this year where I was forced to take a sabbatical. I was forced to take off the normal trappings of ambition and vanity, pretense, all the things we all strap on every day to be adults in this world. I had to put those in the closet. I was in bed for a year. I lost a lot of weight. I looked bad. I was like a living ghost. Um, but during that year, I was surrounded by the ones I love, and my family was reunited, and I created this incredible community in the Council of Dads. And I think in a lot of ways, by laying fallow, now that it's been three years that I am still cancer-free, that I no longer use crutches or a cane, I, I literally feel to you talking today um, that I am more creatively alive, that I am more connected to people, that I am more kind of passionate about my life than I have been in a very long time. Mm. And so that last year was a jubilee year, and it did really rejuvenate me in many, many ways. I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it did happen to me. I also appreciate the observation you make about how this experience uh, affected very deeply, of course, uh, your wife and your two daughters, but beyond maybe some of the, the, the most obvious ways, you have noticed things in your daughters uh, in terms of maybe deepened sensitivity and compassion when it comes to, to others. And I'm especially intrigued about these words you write about your wife, Linda. Uh, I have watched as Linda absorbed the pummels and emerged not only with her head unbent, but with new dimensions in her heart. That's really beautifully put. Um, I wonder if you could just share a little bit about uh, the way in which you, you see that to be true with your wife. My wife is an executive, and she's a leader. She's an entrepreneur. She's very much of a visionary kind of person. She had this idea to help young entrepreneurs. She's built this organization over the last 15 years. It now runs in 15 countries around the world. And I think like a lot of women who survive in, I mean, my wife works in Latin America. She works in Middle East. She works in Wall Street. She works, uh, you know, she raises money on Wall Street. She, she thrives in male-dominated worlds. And a lot of the ways women have learned to do that is to put on armor and to um, kind of plow through and be strong and not be vulnerable. Here she was. To remind, I'm, you know, a husband in and out of the hospital who can't walk, young children. I'm at the brink of death on several occasions. She simply had to be vulnerable. Uh, she couldn't keep it all in, and she couldn't do it all. And she found it made her more, a more effective leader, a more effective manager, and um, a a more, oh gosh, I don't know, whole, complete. I mean, I, I wanna, don't want to get too new agey here, but. J j it just brought a new dimension to her, um, to her leadership. She's still strong, but now she's much more sensitive to other people's pain, and she's managed to embrace her own role as a woman, as a mother, uh, as a wife, as a person who understands the fragility of life into her, I don't know, persona, into that. So it's not just armor that she puts on every day. She also puts on uh, weakness. Do you have time for just one more quick question? Sure. Uh, 
in addition to the six men in the Council of Dads, there are other important people in this in this book, and one of them is Dr. John Healy. Yeah, I know that. I'm glad you went there, yeah. Yes. And um, one of my favorite things, which he says, is the two of you have a conversation, involves something about interesting questions. Um, uh, let me read just this and then have you uh, just comment. Um, so he was uh, at, at first, uh, I think, a sports medicine doctor. But I soon found that taking care of people who want to play tennis that weekend was not sufficiently satisfying to me. That's important. I'm glad someone's doing that. But I gravitated to where the most interesting questions were. And, of course, for him, ultimately, that was cancer. But that notion of gravitating to where the most interesting questions are is certainly a, a great lesson for all of us, no matter what we do with our lives. Well, he, he, he said the single thing that's been most quoted from the Council of Dads, the book, to me, because I went to see him on the year anniversary of my diagnosis, and I said, if my daughters come to you one day, now we're talking about a guy, he, he's, um, he's, the, he's the orthopedic surgeon, he's actually I think, now the head of the International Body of Orthopedists, he's the president the president of the International Society of Limb Salvage, which is the least euphemistic name I've ever heard. Um, but that's exactly what he did. He salvaged my limb. He saved my leg uh, on a 15-hour surgery. And so I said, and he's this, he grew up outside of Boston, an Irish Catholic boy. He wears, he wears these little striped bow ties. He speaks three words a minute, which when you're a patient and you're hanging on every word, it means you hang for a very long time. Um, and so I said, so if my girls come to you and say, what should we learn from my daughter's experience, uh, excuse me, from my daddy's experience, what would you tell him? And this man pauses, he paused longer than I've ever heard anybody pause before. And he said, I would tell your daughters what I know. And that is, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. I want you to live. And to me, there is simply no better lesson from this experience. Um, live your life. And the experience that we've had, it's not a burden on the shoulders to us. It's really this engine at our backs that says, get up, get out of the house, take a kid, take a walk, take a friend, take a, make a memory. Um, and that's why the subtitle of the Council of Dads uh, in the paperback that's just been released is a story of, of family, friendship, and learning how to live. And in the time that remains to us in this hour, I want to read to you from Chapter 12 of the Council of Dads. This chapter is titled, Use Your Words. Long before I had cancer, I had a secret game I played with myself involving my kids. It was a memory exercise, a way of cheating time. Basically, it was an errand into the impossible. I tried to guess what they would remember. We would be biking through the dunes or planting flowers in the backyard or dripping turrets onto sandcastles, and they would be having the perfect reaction. They would be happy or ignited by a new idea or simply free of the gossamer of complications that ensnares childhood. And I would say to myself, this is the moment they will always remember. This is the experience that will mark this age forever. When I got sick, this game took on new urgency. Friends tried to comfort me. Don't worry, your children are so young, your illness will become a distant memory for them. After all, how many memories do you have from when you were three? These comments were anything but comforting. If my children remembered little from these years, that meant if I died, they would remember little of me. 
even more unnerving. Now I had trouble walking. We were restricted in the types of memories we could build. Left without legs, I fell back on their one true passion. I turned to words. One day, a few months into my treatment, I invited Tybee and Eden into my bed. How about a reading party, I said. They squealed and returned with armfuls of their favorite books, Angelina Ballerina, The Jelly Beans and the Big Dance, Thesaurus Rex. For an hour, we were a dad's fantasy of a living library, all giggles, dramatic accents, concerned expressions, and throaty cheers. These weren't books as babysitters. These were books as bridges. Somewhere in the middle, I closed a book and announced, Girls, I want to tell you something. My voice got all drippy and earnest. If you always read books, you'll always be happy. They nodded, repeated what I'd said, then returned to their books. Suddenly that feeling came over me. This is it, I thought. This is the phrase they'll never forget. This is the one story they'll tell their first boyfriends when they're lying on the quadrangle and recounting their life stories. I started choking up. A day with cancer is a day with tears. But playtime was coming to an end, so I managed to wrangle their attention once more. Thank you for daddy time, I said, and remember. I looked at them, hoping they would repeat my line. I wanted them to tell me we had been communicating. I wanted them to reassure me they'd always remember who I was. If you always read books, I said, and it was Tybee who answered, you'll always be smart. Well, yes, <laughs> I laughed out loud. We were overwhelmed first-time parents in the early hours after the girls were born. The initial days were a swirl of blockaded milk ducts, non-lactating mouths, and landfills of diapers. The biggest challenge we faced was not the lack of sleep or backlogged belches, but the Olympian gymnastics of breastfeeding two newborns simultaneously. Linda could either feed them serially, which meant she was back on virtual bed rest, or use the double football in which she clasped a baby under each arm like an overeager running back. Neither worked very well. The upshot was that we starved one and dropped the other in the first week. Our doctor was growing concerned about our effectlessness. Eventually, we settled into an awkward pose in which a feeding involved three adults. Linda provided the mise en place. One adult held up one baby and someone else held up the other. We kept an elaborate spreadsheet chronicling who'd eaten what, drank how much supplement, peed what amount, and pooped what volume. Some weeks into this routine, I was recounting this tale of survival to a table of friends and mentioned how hard we had been working to breastfeed our daughters. We, a mom friend, sternly corrected, you mean she? No, I insisted, staking a flag for forgotten dads. I meant we. Once we figured out how to keep the girls alive, we could finally think about their development. And from the beginning, we were nervous about words. The most common question we were asked as parents of twins was, do they have their own language? Twin talk or idioglossia is a condition in which twins develop a private language incomprehensible to outsiders. The principal exclamation we were told is that children learn to speak by mimicking those around them, and twins spend more time staring at each other than their parents. Also, grown-ups rarely speak to twins face-to-face, -face, more often addressing them as a pair. Enunciation became our obsession. Phonics was our focus. Forget stage parents, we were diphthong parents. And whether it was genetics or overcompensation, the process worked. Our girls talked before they walked. 
They knew their ABCs by a year. By 18 months, they were losing themselves in menus and catalogs, and by two and a half, they were reciting Dr. Seuss in the accent of Mary Poppins. Use your words, we begged when they threw tantrums, but more often we pleaded for the opposite. Stop talking and go to sleep. Idia glossia who? Our girls love to talk except when others were around. When the doorbell rang, our nonstop chatterers suddenly turned into ardent mimes. To circumvent their shyness, we devised a list of questions for them to grill every visitor. When is your birthday? What did you have for breakfast? What is your favorite place? Eventually, they added a question of their own. What is your favorite Disney princess? And that's when we knew it was time for another game. We called it Reporters. Killing time one day in an airport, I sent the girls to far-flung corners to count the number of seats, ascertain the color of a sign, or ask a jet-lagged passenger where she lived. Each girl was charged with announcing her name and giving a report on her findings. But the most effective tool we found for building meaning through words was a game I played every night as a child, bad and good. Dinner was sacred in my house. My siblings and I were encouraged to do our own activities in the afternoons, but 6 p.m. dinner was untouchable. Every night we followed the same routine. A designated moderator would go around the table and ask each person, What happened bad to you today? My parents offered bads too, and the effect was to show their vulnerabilities in a sort of real-time tutorial in coping with disappointments. The one hard and fast decree, You can't knock someone else's bad. The next round of questions was upbeat. What happened good to you today? The value of ending with positives was lost on none of us, but the game has an irresistible structure and intimacy. When Linda and I initiated bad and good with the girls, they didn't grasp the rules at first. They would repeat our bads. I didn't get enough sleep or mimic each other's. Mine is the same as hers. But in time, they grew more confident in expressing their feelings. My sister stole my tiara, or Mommy stayed with us all day. The game became a way to chart their individuation. It also helped show that difficult conversations can be had with people of all ages, often with conflicting points of view, as long as you learn not to knock them. An excerpt from the chapter called Use Your Words. And now I want to read to you a, a portion from uh, another chapter called The Lesson of the dunes. It is in this chapter that Bruce Feiler shares some thoughts uh, of wisdom that he learned from his father. And he writes, the first pearl of wisdom I remember learning from my father came when I was 13. It was the night of my bar mitzvah, and my parents had invited friends over to our house. Near the end of the party, my father called me over to the bar, ordered a gin and tonic, and handed it to me. You're a man now, he said, you're responsible for your own actions. And if I ever had too much to drink, he said, it would be among the greatest pleasures of his life if I would call him and ask him to come pick me up. The moment was classic Ed Filer, trusting, indirectly emotional, constantly nudging us out of the nest. It was his way of saying, as he often did, that he was our cheerleader. His goal was to provide the shoulders on which we would climb into the sky. He wanted nothing more than to be the commas in some magazine, as in Bruce Filer, comma, son of Mr. and Mrs. Edwin J. Filer, comma, reached some milestone this week. I didn't fully realize what he was trying to say until I, too, became a parent. The higher joy is not the light, it's the reflection. The greater pleasure is not climbing up, 
it's handing down between the commas. Two excerpts from the best-selling book, The Council of Dads, now available in paperback by author Bruce Feiler. <laughs> 